Hello, and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, your regular Ballpark co-host and the editor of the U.S. Center's USAP blog, which covers all things U.S. politics and policy. This extra inning is a break from our regular State of the States programming, which you should definitely catch up on if you're behind. For this episode, I spoke with Dr. Corey Shaki, the Deputy Director General of the Institute for Strategic Studies. I caught up with Corey earlier this year to talk about what happens when one superpower hands over its dominant role in the world to another. It's also the topic of our latest book, Safe Passage. We also discussed the impact of President Trump's foreign policy on America's standing in the world and the future of the Republican Party. Corey will be back at the LSE on the 27th of November to speak alongside John Eikenberry, Leslie Vinjamuri, and the U.S. Center's own Peter Trubowitz about Trump's first two years in office. I'm Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the IISS. So, your most recent book, Safe Passage, looks at how the world uh, moved from a British to an American hegemony, and that was largely a peaceful transition. So, why was it so peaceful? And do you think the next transition, which may be away from the U.S. towards China, is it likely to be just as peaceful? That's actually the question that animated me writing the book. I was looking at whether transitions between a rising power and an established dominant rule giving and rule enforcing power could be peaceful. I didn't realize that the British to the United States was the only peaceful transition when I started writing the book. And what made it peaceful was that in the crucial time period of the 1870s and 1880s, the United States, because of westward expansion, because of manifest destiny, we came to think of ourselves in imperial terms. And Britain, because of the peaceful expansion of its political franchise, became much more widely democratic. So the two countries looked alike to each other and different from everyone else. And that gave governments the belief that they could work together. And then civil society in those two countries created pressure for peaceful arbitration of disputes and for engagement in ways that bought policy space for compromise by governments. Do I think China is, if this China continues to rise, I do not think a transition can be peaceful unless it liberalizes as it continues to rise. Because I don't think you see either the sense of similarity between the two governments or the kind of effective civil society pressure on the authoritarian government of China that can create that kind of space for policy compromise. So as a country that's um, lost, very much lost its empire, the UK, does the UK have any lessons for the US as its power wanes, if, if indeed the US power is actually waning? Oh, I love that question, because actually the restraint experienced by the United States from British leadership of this transition, the restraint was extraordinary that the British possessed. But I think that too is unlikely to translate, because... What I noticed reading Aaron Friedberg's brilliant book, Weary Titan, that looks at the final 10 years of British hegemony is that he ascribes to a declining Britain characteristics that mark British policy throughout the previous 150 years, even at the height of British power. The British government 
always worried they couldn't afford it, always worried they needed allies, always worried that their adversaries were stronger than they were. One of the most striking things for me in writing the book was realizing that the United States wears its hegemony so much more comfortably than Britain ever did. But that uncertainty on the part of the British government was what made for such smart strategy about deciding when to counter American power and when to give into it in different kinds of circumstances. And I sadly don't see the United States having the kind of judiciousness that Britain exercised, but also in part because the rising power we're worried about isn't like us in a fundamental political sense. So going back to, to what we were talking about after the first question, you spoke a bit about sort of civil society groups in the UK, I think, uh, helping to sort of ease its transition and, and having an effect. You've written about the, the beneficial effects of immigration onto America. And I know uh, I was reading one of your columns where you talk about how that affected American Britain in the Civil War and how Britain get involved. Would you mind expanding on that? Because I think it'd be really interesting in terms of for our listeners, because it's not something we really think about in terms of the role of groups of immigrants within a country and, and how, how are they affecting the U.S. now? It was the most surprising and poignant thing I learned writing this book, which is that during the American Civil War. So what I did in the book was look at moments where Britain had opportunities, choices to make about whether to try and impede America's rise. And the most obvious, biggest opportunity Britain had was during the American Civil War from 1861 to 1863. So before the Emancipation Proclamation put the American government really squarely in abolition as the purpose of the the civil war that the british government on three different occasions contemplated recognizing the confederacy which would have permitted the breaking of the northern blockade of the south and would have in my judgment turned the tide of war in favor of southern secession and so i tried to explore why the british didn't pull that trigger And the reasons are what turned out to be so poignant because who the United States is as a political culture and who we are as an immigrant country are what stayed the hand of the Palmerston government. They were concerned that if they associated themselves with a sort of aristocratic slaveholding South, that it would increase pressure for political democratization in Britain. And they also worried that because the vast majority of immigrants from Britain to the United States by 1860 were from Ireland and Scotland to the industrial north, they worried that those familial connections between immigrant Americans and their home countries would complicate Britain's ability to govern Ireland and Scotland. And so... It flipped the American experience of disgracefully interning Japanese Americans during World War II on its head. That is, the immigrant mosaic of American society proved to be an extraordinarily powerful foreign policy tool able to stay the hand of the strongest state in the international order. 
And as we are having another disgraceful national conversation about immigration in my country right now, led by the racist and xenophobic commentary and policies of President Trump, it seemed like a useful time to have a conversation with my fellow Americans about immigration in a very different light than the president is trying to characterize it. You've actually just done a, a neat segue to my sort of sub-question, which was keeping in mind that immigration, what the term you use, what the immigrant mosaic uh, of America, which is an absolutely fantastic term. Are President Trump's anti-immigration policies, are they likely to hurt the U.S. in the long term in a foreign policy sense or even a, just a societal sense? Yes, absolutely. They're already hurting the United States and they are going to hurt us more as time goes on. They are hurting us by denting, badly damaging American soft power because we are a society of immigrants. We are a society of refugees fleeing danger to safety, of people fleeing crime and corruption towards the rule of law, of people looking for the American dream to work hard and play by the rules and be one generation safely in the middle class and have their children run the country. That dynamism has brought the United States some of the world's most talented, innovative, risk-taking people. That's the engine of our economy Something like 50% of new businesses are started by American immigrants, by immigrants to my country. So it's the lifeblood of American society. It feeds our sense of ourself as an optimistic, dynamic society. And also the engine of our creativity. One of my favorite examples was given by a Silicon Valley innovator who told me that immigrants are natural innovators because they look at stuff that natives take for granted and wonder why it's the way it is. Why are electrical plugs the way they are? An American wouldn't think to ask that, but an immigrant to the United States would. And so as Emily Dickinson described it, they tell the truth, but tell it slant. And that's that's who innovators are. Thank you. That's uh, fantastic. Moving on to sort of more foreign policy issues more generally. So in a recent article for the, uh, for the New York Times, you wrote that the, well, the heading was Trump's doctrine is winning and the world is losing. So what do you see as being the Trump doctrine and how is it affecting the world? Tom Wright from the Brookings Institution was the first person to take candidate Donald Trump seriously. And he went back and did research on Trump's policies, Trump's attitudes, from the 1980s forward. And he demonstrated just how consistent Donald Trump's views have been about the perniciousness of immigration, about allies being a burden rather than a benefit to America, taking advantage of us, and trade as zero sum, right? So it doesn't help us all. It helps others and not us. And therefore, we need to break up our current trade deals and build new ones. All three of those attitudes are genuine challenges to how the United States has operated as a government out in the world in the last 70 years. And President Trump's policies reflect those three things, right? I just read that he said last week, 
or he said at the G7, that NATO is as bad as NAFTA. Everybody's taking advantage of us. And first of all, that's fundamentally false. But second of all, it flies in the face of the liberal order that the hard men who fought and won World War II built in order to make my country and other countries that opt into these rules peaceful and prosperous. He's playing a very dangerous game in trying to bust up the existing order. So um, kind of following on from that, you work for both Democratic and Republican administrations in Washington, that's correct. How does Trump's foreign policy doctrine differ from that of past Republican presidents? Republican presidents have tended to be cheap. So they want balanced budgets. They don't want deficit spending. They agonize about federal debt. Donald Trump doesn't do any of those things, right? The budget that he presented to Congress and that they passed, the Republican Congress passed, uh, which tells you how much my political party is in thrall to Donald Trump, that budget will create a trillion dollars of additional debt for the United States every single year. So that's the first way in which he's an outlier. The second way in which he's an outlier is his inability to understand that America's allies are our major advantage in dealing with a rising China, in dealing with a bitter descending Russia, in almost every category you can think of about how the United States engages with the rest of the world. The fact that we play team sports, that other countries voluntarily help us do what we're trying to do in the world because they see us as a rule setter and enforcer of rules that voluntarily limit our power and give weaker states a say in the shape of the international order. That has been the genius of American foreign policy since 1945. And that's the second way in which Donald Trump is an outlier to Republican presidents. The third way in which he's an outlier is that he fundamentally doesn't understand the economy, but most especially you see this in trade policy. He has no conception of modern supply chains that have, you know, cars in construction hopscotching between Canada, Mexico, and the United States multiple times as different niche producers provide inputs to them. I am hoping that American businesses can bring that civil society power to bear on the president and teach him enough economics that he doesn't collapse the international trading system. But we're already pretty late in the day for that to happen. So uh, you're a Republican. In what ways is, is Donald Trump changing the party itself? And how permanent do you think these changes will be? I think those are the most important questions in American politics right now. I am a serenely unrepentant signatory of all of the anti-Trump letters that establishment Republicans circulated in the run-up to the election. And I feel like President Trump validates our concerns and our criticisms virtually every single day. So the biggest surprise to me has been to realize that Republicans in Congress would be complicit in the damage the president wanted to do. And there are kind of two lines of arguments that Republicans make. 
One is that the administrative and regulatory accretion of the state's power had become an unbearable burden on the economy. And there, Donald Trump is rolling that back. And so some Republicans say, you know, we'll deal with the short-term problems, the disgrace and the damage that Trump does because he will fire up the economy such that we can address other problems later. And the second argument that some Republicans make is, but, you know, he put Justice Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, one of the best qualified and most thoughtful jurists in two generations. Justice Kennedy has just announced his retirement, so Donald Trump will get a second court pick. And while it won't change the composition of the court, because Kennedy was himself a conservative, Kennedy has almost always been the swing vote. So President Trump has the opportunity to appoint either someone similar who will be a swing vote or somebody more reliably conservative from the bench. And that is what Democrats are worried about. And that is what many Republicans use as the validation for the choice that they've made. But I think it's terrible for us as a political party to have hitched our wagon to somebody who doesn't share conservative principles and who is behaving in a way so astoundingly corrupt that we as a party are going to be tarnished with it going forward. And you can see it in particular in the political affiliations that people 25 and under are choosing. We are building a tsunami of democratic support that is going to help the opposition across the next seven presidential contests. Just a quick follow-up on, on Trump's support and, and the people, you know, you talk about members of Congress supporting him. Do you think that's just purely for sort of selfish electoral reasons because they know that's where Trump's base is? And as a supplement to that, what do you think, Trump obviously doesn't appeal to you, but he appeals to a large number of Americans, or at least it seems that way from here. What do you think Trump appeal is? And is it just because he was just the next Republican in line? Or is there something different about Trump compared to, say, George W. Bush or even Reagan that kind of has brought that out? Those are both great questions. I think the dynamic with members of Congress is different from the public. So let me take them separately. With members of Congress, you know, Donald Trump wasn't the next Republican in line. He catapulted over and above 14 better qualified Republicans, all of whom would have governed much more traditionally according to Republican principles and according to the successful foreign policy that presidents of both parties have propagated over 70 years. And so I think therein lies the key to why members of Congress are supporting him. Either they see him as a useful idiot so that they can advance their policies, or for many more principled Republican members of Congress that I have spoken to, they saw the wreckage Donald Trump made of all those establishment candidates. And this is a new form of American politics that everybody's still trying to figure out how to counter, how to capitalize on. So everybody's turning the key in the lock. And they're desperately fearful that the president's high volume, direct to the American public criticism of them might have as its consequences. So they're not wrong to be scared that, wow, this is new and we don't know what to make of it, but they're wrong to be complicit in it.
On the part of the American public, I think, well, we don't know, right, really how deep the roots are. The great thing about American politics is we get to test drive every two years on a fixed schedule. We get to find out what the American public actually thinks. And one of the things that made Donald Trump's election such a surprise was that polls didn't foretell it. So we ought to take current polls with a grain of salt and with a healthy skepticism. But in November, we're going to find out what the American public thinks. My fond, fervent hope is that support for President Trump was a moment in time that he surfed a cresting wave of a time in which Americans feel like things are changing very fast and they don't have their bearings. They don't quite understand what the tumultuousness of the modern economy means for them. They're scared about the consequences of it. And he felt like somebody who understood their anxiety and voiced their darkest fears. My hope is that as American voters go to the polls in November, that they will think not just about someone who shares their anxieties or voices their anxieties, but thinks about people who will solve their problems. Because I think focusing on who has a policy agenda that can carry this country forward to where we want to be is the question American voters should always be asking themselves. Thank you. So just my, my last question is really thinking about the rest of the world. So Trump will be president barring accident or impeachment for at least another two years, possibly even another six what should the rest of the world be doing? If, if you're a policymaker or even a general member of the public listening to this podcast and you're, you're seeing what's happening in the States and, and you're not happy with it or you don't like it, what should people be doing in the rest of the world in the age of Trump? Another question that I love and one that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about in my own research right now, I think there's three things. First, to hold insistently to our shared values, to the things that we believe to be universal right? Truths that we hold to be self-evident, as Americans say, and to challenge the United States to continue to live those values. Because if we think they're universal, they apply to us as well as to everybody else. And shaming us when we fail to live up to our political creed is an important part of what friends do for each other. So hold hands with your American friends and ask us and challenge us to challenge our own government to be better than this. Second thing is, it goes back to your earlier question about my book, which is the importance of civil society. There is no government so porous, so open to external influence, tied so tightly to its own public as the United States is. And there are all sorts of ways to hit bank shots, right? Support for religious and faith groups, working with state legislatures, right? My favorite statistic these days was given by UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who pointed out that the United States is going to be the first country to meet its Paris Climate Accord goals. This in spite of the president withdrawing from the accords and the overt hostility of the American federal government. And the reason that it's going to happen is that the great golden state of California and the city of Chicago and Apple computers and the state of New York are all proceeding along that path 
irrespective of the behavior of the federal government. That's the genius of the American political system. So find a way to reach in and help affect that through civil society, through journalism, through activism, because Americans trying to sustain the rule of law and our universal values need your help right now. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks to Corey Sharkey for joining me. This extra inning was produced by Michaela Herman, and The Ballpark Podcast is supported with help from the LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all of our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk. That center spelled the British way, by the way, R-E. Or you can also send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And tell your friends about us, too. Here's the legal bit. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening. <laughs>